Just like circumstances may not change, we also noted that you cannot, I cannot change anyone. So I can't change my external circumstances, and that includes not being able to change some other person with whom I'm in relationship. And then lastly, we noted in those uh, set of notes that we should expect the unexpected. Expect to be surprised in how God works in order to effect change in our lives. There are a lot of examples of that in Scripture, which then leads to the second area where our perspective needs to change. First area is we need to change our perspective about what needs to change or who needs to change. That's the first thing. Circumstances may not focus on yourself. You can't change anybody else. And expect to be surprised, which leads to the second area of a needed change of perspective, namely how change happens. How change happens. And from a Christian standpoint, from a biblical standpoint, God is at work. This is how change happens. God at work for the good of his people, even when life and situations are not good. So how does change occur? Change occurs because God is active. God is at work. In the first two lessons, particularly the last lesson, we said you have to start with God. You have to start with an understanding, reminding yourself that God is the central player in the drama of life, including my life and yours. And God, this is how change happens then. God is at work for the good of his people, even when what changes, what we might like to change, as I just talked about, isn't. God's at work for the good of his people, even when life and situations are not good. And I defined life and situations the very first week, a couple of weeks ago, because the very first line of the first lesson used those words, life and uh, situations. And by that, by life, I mean our relationships and our situations, our external circumstances. And all of us have those. And in one or both categories, we may have things that are not as we would desire. They're not good from our perspective. But God is at work for the good of his people, even when either or both of those are not good. How does change happen? We need a change of perspective on how change happens. God's at work for good even when our stuff is not good. And related to that, God brings good out of bad. God brings good. God develops good out of bad. So there are times where your life, your relationships, your external situations are currently not good. God is at work in those, and he chooses to bring you out of those. Or he chooses to change the, the external circumstance or the person that you're having the difficulty with, and he brings you out of the bad. You're not in it anymore, at least in that, in that situa- set of circumstances. So God does do that. He brings good out of bad, but often he brings good within bad. 
So if all the other stuff I've been talking about, that it may not change, you can't change anybody, your circumstances may not change, expect to be surprised, if all that's true, and it is, by the way, then, then it follows that there are going to be times where the good that God creates, the good that God develops, is going to occur within, not outside of, the difficulty. God will, God will use our lives and our situations to change us. So we need to change a perspective about what it is that needs to change and how it is that change comes about. God's the central player. God is at work for the good of his people. He may bring you out of it. And it's okay to pray to that end and to work to that end. But also understanding all the while that he may produce the change within the situation. And that change would be within, within you. God will use lives, that is relationships, situations, to change us. Now, when God does that, think for a minute, why would God do that? Why would God use my relationships? Why would God use my external circumstances to, to change me, to change you? Well, uh, I've got a couple reasons here. One is so that you can handle what he's giving you. God is changing you, strengthening you, developing you, so that you can handle what it is he's given you for the good purpose that he has, always has in it. So God will use relationships, our lives, and situations to change us so that we can, we can handle what we're in or what comes next. Secondly, so that we can help others. When you've been helped this way, when you have seen, when you've had the perspective that we're talking about here, and then you are changed within your relationships and your external circumstances. And you see that God has strengthened you and grown you to help you in it and what comes next. You're in a position to help other people. And God desires that. He desires that we be a help to other people. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we may comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. That's what it says. What a beautiful passage. The God of all comfort gets you through your junk so you can help people get through their junk. That's my paraphrase. On this. Right? So God will use the lives and situations to change us so we can handle it, so that we can also help others. So God may change your circumstances. He may. And your circumstances include the relationships and the situations. God may change those. 
but he will change you. See, God doesn't promise to change our circumstances. But if we do what he says, he will change us. So change happens even if circumstances don't change. In me, in you. And God guarantees that. He doesn't guarantee the external change. He does guarantee an internal change. And if he doesn't change the external circumstances, the perspective you, I, all of us need to have is that that's a good thing, that God has good in this, that God is doing this refining, all the stuff I talked about earlier. So if he, if he keeps us in it, he's got something, he's got something going. He's got something good. I may live to see it. Maybe I won't. But he has something good going. Look in Scripture. You guys know the story of Joseph. Many of you know the story of Joseph. I mean, think about all the years that Joseph has been betrayed, that Joseph has been sold into slavery. He's been left behind by his brothers, his treacherous brothers. For all they know and expect, he's dead. And all the while, you know, just try to think about what Joseph's thinking. And for many of those years, Joseph languished. But God begins to work in those circumstances to now make Joseph a central player in what God's doing. And you all know that at the end, the brothers, unbeknownst to the brothers, they have to come to Egypt where Joseph has become, you know, a, a right-hand man to Pharaoh, and they need food. And Egypt has food because Joseph was genius in saying we need to save food for a coming famine. And he, and so they do that. And they have to come for food to Joseph. And when they realize it's Joseph, they believe he will do with them what they would have done with somebody who did their deeds. He's going to kill us. And you remember famously he says in the last chapter of the book of Genesis, chapter 50, and verse 20, that you intended this for evil, but God meant it for good. So in the midst of the stuff, in the midst of everything that's going on, God is still doing something good. You see that in the life of Esther, as God used Esther to actually save the nation. And famously in Esther chapter 4 and verse 14, Esther 4.14, Esther was told, Who knows but that you, Esther, have been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. God has orchestrated the circumstances to bring this good. And in both of those and in bunches of other stories that you see in Scripture, not least the story of the betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus himself, you see lots of sin on the part of people and God using the actions of people, even the evil actions of people, to produce his good end. So we said in the first lesson, this line is in that, there's a subheading, in the paperwork you received the first two weeks. And it says this, God uses sin sinlessly. God doesn't sin in using other people's sin. They sin. 
But a sovereign God who's in control of everything uses the things people do to produce his good ends. God uses sin sinlessly. Now, if you come to believe that, and it would be great if you did, then you think about the stuff you're in right now. Think about the relationship you're in. You know, the spouse you have. And you just don't know how you're going to make it with this spouse. And maybe that spouse sins against you. Regularly. They, how, how am I going to live with this person? I can't. By the way, if you're being harmed, then you should leave. So I'm not counseling being abused and then we'll try to work on changing that person and changing you as well but you know you think about your boss and I can't get another job but I'm stuck with this boss and I just dread going into work every day whatever it is you're in some situation you're in some relationship that you're bound to you don't see a way out you don't see any signs of change from that person and what I'm telling you is even when your boss is a jerk God uses (laughs) sin sinlessly and he'll and he'll use that in your life if you obey what he what he says and he will change you so that you can handle it and so that you can help help others so change happens even if the circumstances don't change Now, if the disease then that we have is contrary to what all of us initially think (laughs) until God corrects it, all of us naturally think that the disease is outside of us, that the problem is outside of us. The problem is my boss, the problem is your boss may be a problem and your spouse may be a problem and your kids may be a problem. But if the ultimate disease, if the ultimate problem and the ultimate thing that needs to change is actually located inside rather than outside, then that means, look at the top of page 9. If that's true, that the locus, the location, the source is actually not what most of us think. It's not outside, it's inside. The thing that's most important is my heart. Thus you take a class called change of heart. And that means you need a change of counselor. So we need a change of perspective and we need a change of counselor. Top of page nine. If you want to change your life, you need a self-help book to guide you through the process. The good news is there is a perfect book for you called the Bible, the world's most perfect psychology book. In the Bible, you have a system of thought that can radically change your life. So what what I'm saying here then is if the real, the problem we really want to get at, if we want a radical solution, radical meaning to the root, then if it's inside, then the answer's not inside. That's where the problem is. The problem is going to come from, or excuse me, the solution is going to come from a source outside of me. That source outside of me is, first of all, God, and then thanks be to God, he wrote a book. 
And that's what we're talking about with regard to change of counselor. God counseling you, God directing you, God counseling and directing me through his book. Both of which are external to me. God is external to me. His book is external to me. I'm not depending on me. I'm depending on these good resources outside of me to change the inside of me. In the last lesson, second paragraph, page 9, we saw the necessity of beginning with God. He's your starting point. The window through which you view everything in your life, assuming you are a Christian. You will never have a more solid foundation, starting point, or window than the Lord. He's the only person who can equip you for living well in His world. But knowing that God is the foundation is not enough. You have to invite Him to instruct you about you. In particular, you need to see what God says about why you do what you do, why you respond to life's trials the way you do, why you affect people the way you do, why you're affected by people the way you are. I mean, you look at how many times you and, and I are in there, and you think about how most of us answer those questions. You know, why do I do what I do? And God's going to give answers to that in, in Scripture. But they're going to be different. Remember we said expect the unexpected. So they're going to be different than you expect. So I've got this bottle of water. And it's only about a third full. So I can't like spill any out of it. But if it were filled up to the top and I shook it. And water then would come out. And I said to you, why did water come out? You would say, because you shook it. But the Bible's answer is no. Because there was water in there. That's why it came out. In other words, what comes out of us is an indication of what's already in us. Jesus said that. It's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. It's our hearts that cause us to deal with our issues the way we deal with them, to respond to our issues the way we respond to them. And that's what these bullet points are about then. You know, the shaking of the, the bottle and the water coming out, that's the stimulus. But the water coming out is the response. And so we can all have all, we all have all kinds of stimuli in our lives, external to us. But how we respond is an inside job. And God wrote a book that tells us why we do what we do, how we, why we respond the way we do, why we're, we affect others as we do and are affected by others as we are. In God, and thankfully in a, in a book that he wrote, you have the middle of page 9, original psychologist. To engage those why questions is to practice psychology. Psychology is a very accurate way to think about the human condition. It's a Bible-implied word, just like theology is a Bible-implied word that describes what we know about God. Psychology describes what we know about people. So theology is this compound of two words, theos and logos. Theos is God. Logos is study. And so theology is the study of God. Psychology, then, is the study of something. Next paragraph, the word psychology is a compound word that derives from psyche and logos, the Greek word suke, actually. 
The word psyche means soul. Logos means the word concerning or study of the soul. Humans consist of two parts. We've got these, we've got these uh, two portions of, of humanity. God made us as material and immaterial, physical and spiritual. The word psychology points to the spiritual part of a person, their inner being. Anthropology, so all the logies, study of, anthropos, humanity, man, study of man, the outer being. So theology is the study of God, anthropology the study of people, but psychology the study of our inner being. If I've got an inside thing going on that causes me to do what I do and react the way I react and affect people the way I affect people and be affected by people the way I am, if, if that's an inside thing, then I'm going to need some help from outside to identify that and to be able to reorder that. The Bible says that the Lord, bottom of page 9, formed humanity of the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. So we learn that God was the author and creator of the spiritual and the physical, the body, but also the immaterial part of who we are. God made our, top of page 10, our psyche. Our psyche was given to us by the predetermined wisdom and action of God. The Lord is the one who thought of the soul. He created the soul. He's the architect of the soul. But He not only created it, He's given us a word by which we study it. A book. So you could call it a psychology book in that sense. The breath of God produced man's spiritual life. Now get this. And the breath of God produced man's spiritual guide. The Bible. So people who have the Spirit of God, that is Christians, every Christian has the Spirit of God, and people who have the Spirit of God, according to God's guidebook, then, resonate with what God's instructions in His Spirit-given book say. Now, if you don't have, if you're not a Christian, you don't have the Spirit of God, and somebody like me, some preacher comes along and he starts telling you what a, an ancient book called the Bible says about you and about your problems, you're yawning and saying, why did you bring me here? But if you're a Christian, what God says in the Bible, what God says in His Word, His Spirit-given Word resonates with people who have been given the Spirit. It's called... Uh, illumination and the Bible teaches this thing I mean we made up the word just like we made up the word Trinity to give the concept of God the Father God the Son God the Holy Spirit illumination means to turn the light on illumine to illumine a room means you turn the switch on you turn the lights on and the Holy Spirit illuminates turns the light on for people who have the Spirit when they study God's Word about any subject, including about themselves. So top of page 10 again, God not only created the soul, He's given us a word by which we study it. The breath of God produced man's spiritual life. The breath of God produced man's spiritual guide, the Bible. All Scripture is 
sourced in God. It came from God. In fact, the Bible literally says that Scripture is breathed out by God. God breathed. He used human beings to produce it. He used their circumstances. But he so guided the process that what they wrote is what he wanted written. 2 Peter chapter 1, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. I'm thankful that Peter, who wrote that, because God wanted him to write it, it's God's word ultimately, but I'm thankful that Peter didn't say in that first line, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to godliness. He says life and godliness. And here's why that's important. When we think about godliness, most of us would just think about stuff we do on Sunday. We've got sort of a compartment of godliness. <laughs> we got the spiritual compartment. We got the holy compartment. We got the church compartment. I got the religious compartment. That's what we mean by godliness. He goes, no, it's life and godliness. It's everything. It's your everyday life. It's your interactions with people. It's your inner thoughts. It's the stuff that you're thinking about and doing all the time. Life and godliness. The Bible is a book that tells us about God, humanity, and life. Everything we need to know about God, theology, is derived from the Bible. There's no book in the world that gives us new or undiscovered information about God. Any other author from any other book that tells us about God, again, that's the study of God, theology, gained his or her insight from the Bible. And so all books are either supported or discredited by the clear teaching of God's Word. God has graciously given us this external tool, His guidebook, the Bible, and it tells us about Him and all things pertaining to Him. And any claims pertaining to Him must be measured against what He has said in His book. And the same, middle of page 10, is true for psychology. The Lord created the psyche. And He created the logos concerning the psyche. So that the purest soul book ever written is, is God's Word. So, yeah, you know, you came to the right place. Not necessarily the right guy, but you came to the right place. You came to the, because we got the book. And we care about the book. And we try to study the book, and we try to make application of the book. And can you see that we're really big on the book? And so if nothing else, so far in just the first three weeks of this series, if you could lose, if you had this, then lose the idea that the Bible is a Sunday school book or the Bible is somehow a Sunday only book. The Bible's a life book. Life and godliness. Everything. The God who gave it knows everything. Only a God who knows everything, an omniscient God could produce a book thousands of years before now, the last book is written 2,000 years ago, and yet ensure that in either precept or principle, everything that I need for life and godliness is in there. Only an omniscient God could do that. 
But the Bible is like the old ragu commercials. You guys remember that? Some of you are old enough. So the commercial and the guy's tasting, he's going, hey, where's the, where's the oregano? Where's the? And they're going, it's in there. It's in there. And that's the, the, the situation with the Bible. Whatever pertains to your life, whatever pertains to life, any subject, the precepts or principles of the Word of God deal with that. And so I hope we'll see that as we go through our series together. So again, middle of page 10, any literature outside of God's Word that seeks to explain our souls, our psyche, is supported or discredited by the clear teaching of God's Word. God created the soul. God created the soul book. God gave us psychology, the Word concerning the soul or the study of the soul. So problem solving for our lives ought to begin certainly and be centered on the Word of God. So problem solving 101, God's Word teaches every problem you will ever have in your life can be summed up in four categories and resolved in one order. All right, just look at that line. I mean, that's quite a claim, isn't it? But as you take in the totality of the Bible and what it says about us, about God, about other people, all of that, then you can summarize for Problem Solving 101, every problem you will ever have in your life can be summed up in four categories and resolved in one order, in one sequence. We're going to see the order on the next page, but don't turn there. And maybe we'll get to it before we're done today, but maybe not. If not, we'll continue next week. But four categories, a particular sequence. And that's because regardless of who you are or where you live, your problems are not unique. Now, you've got all kinds of details to your life that are not my details. So in that sense, you're unique. If you talk about the details. But if you back up and you look at the categories into which we all fit, into which all of our problems fit, then they're not nearly as different as we think they are. They're not different than other people's problems. We all have a unique fingerprint, and so we want to consider ourselves different, but the real truth is we're not that different. God made one man and every other man and woman, Adam and Eve, from Adam and Eve, every other man and woman have come from them. We are all some people's kids. You know, when you shake your head and you go, some people's kids, man. Holy cow, I wish I could invite them to our parenting class or something. And that happens to me. I'm, like, I'm, at, I'm at a coffee shop or something, and we have great classes here for families. And we've got entrusted, you know, for young moms. And I'm in this coffee shop, and this young mom is trying to deal with her little one, but she clearly has not taken entrusted. And so I want to, you know, put my card out and say, hey, let me invite you. But I, but I don't want to offend. But really, you look at that, and, and, and if you're not careful, you can, you, can, you can judge. You can be holier than thou. If God has taught you some things and allowed you to implement some of those things in your life, and then you look at other people who don't have the book, don't know anything about the book, don't care about the book, 
therefore haven't implemented anything about the book in their life and their family, any of that, and you see that and you just do a sort of tisk tisk superiority kind of view. But what we want is to help everyone who's willing to be helped by looking at the book and seeing that we're all some people's kids. Bottom of page 10, we cannot be different where it matters most or we would need over 7 billion, it might be 8 billion now, unique solutions for our problems. Have you ever considered that? <laughs> I mean, we can't, if we're all different, if there's 7 or 8 billion people in the world and we're all different at the level of where it matters most, then there's got to be, there could be up to seven or eight billion different solutions for everybody's problems. And one of the reasons that people don't get their problems fixed is because they so focus on what they believe to be the uniqueness of theirs. Nobody understands me. Nobody understands my situation. Nobody understands what I've gone through. And because it's so unique, it's, it's useless to talk to anybody. But one, certainly God understands. God knows your situation, right? And if this God wrote a book, then maybe there's some stuff in there about you. So I have this phrase that you know, I've used at our church over the years where I say, I want our church to be a place where it's safe to be a sinner. Safe to be a sinner. And I readily add, I don't mean it's okay for any of us to sin, but I do want this to be a culture. I want this to be an environment where people recognize that we are all, myself included, we are all sinners. And because we recognize that, then we can deal with it rather than hide it. Too often, church is a place to hide the fact that you're a sinner. <laughs> when in fact, church ought to be the place where everybody knows they're a sinner and they can come and get help from a book, by the way, that already told me you're a sinner. So it doesn't do any good for you to come into me, the clergy guy, and try to look better than you really are. You know why? Because I read a book about you. You're in it. I already know you. As God has said about me as well. We're not that different. When it comes to who we really are and what we really need, we all share in what is common to all of us. So the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to humanity. And do you guys remember last week when we looked at James chapter 1? And at the front part of James chapter 1, it says... My brothers and sisters, consider it pure joy whenever you fall into trials of various kinds. That word trials. But then later in that chapter, down in verse 13, it says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. It uses the word tempted. And I made the point last week that the Greek word that's translated trial in verse 2 and tempted in verse 13 are the same word. That's true here as well. First, it's the same word. So 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation to sin has been put before you that's not common to humanity. That's true. But also no trial 
It's the same word. You're, you're not in a trial. You're not in a set of circumstances that's unique to humanity. You're not. So you've got no situation that's, that the adversary is using in order to woo you towards sin that's unique to you because none of our situations are ultimately unique. They're all trials, and we can respond to them rightly or not. All of us. Top of page 11. We do not have a high priest in the Lord Jesus who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but rather we have one who in every respect was tempted as we are and yet without sin. We have one Savior, and He's able to relate to all of us. One man relates to every man because all men are essentially the same. So there's one first Adam in the Bible from whom we all came, and then the Bible calls Jesus the last Adam. And in both, you can have one man representing all humanity because of what's said here. All people are essentially the same. So when it comes to our problems, there are only four. Remember we said there's four categories and then they go in sequential order? Here's your categories. Theological problem. Our problem with God. Psychological problem. Problem with ourselves sociological problem with others, ecological problem with the world in which we live. Your problems fit into one or more of those categories. You got a problem with God, you got a problem with yourself, you got a problem with other people, you got a problem with the environment in which we're in. And there are two unalterable laws to remember when working through these four categories of problems. All problems fit into one of these four. There aren't any other categories. Your homework assignment this week is to come up with a fifth category. Okay? If you can come up with a fifth category, I'll announce it to everybody. and I'll give you, a, I'll give you ten bucks in front of everybody. The church gives me an expense account, by the way. So. <laughs> and I'm good at spending other people's money, so I'll, I'll give you ten bucks. And then law number two, all four of these problems must be resolved in the order in which they are listed. So there's a priority scheme there. The problem with God leads to all the others. And then there's the problem with how we view ourselves and deal with ourselves. And then there's the problem with how we view others and deal with others. And then there's the problem with how we see the external world, the environment in which we're in, and how we deal with it. But it all starts with God, and in order for you to handle other people properly, you're going to have to handle yourself properly first. In order for you to do that, you've got to have your problem with God figured out first. So you, can't, you don't do the fourth one first, you don't do the second one first, you do them in that order. Now we're almost done for today, but in what order do most people do these? We got a problem. In what order, which one, do, which one do we deal with first? My experience is, well, my experience is the one you most we most definitely don't deal with first is the first one. <laughs> like, nobody comes for counsel and says, I got a problem with God. 
Nobody does that. Few people come and say, I'm a mess, I got a, I got a problem. The problem is me. Sometimes. But not that often. Usually it's number three and four. Other people. So people come for marriage counseling. They don't mean marriage counseling. They mean, they mean counseling for the person I married. And it comes out pretty quickly. You know, you start explaining the, the, the issue, and Im almost immediately the issue is this other person and what they do or don't do. And so it's the sociological, it's a prob problem with others, and others are usually a problem. Or the environment, my, my, my particular situation. It's usually those, those two. But they have to be addressed in the order in which they're listed. And we'll start looking at that then next week while you come up with a fifth category. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you again for today. Thank you for your goodness, your grace. Because we have all rebelled, and so we are not owed grace, uh, grace that is merited, grace that is, that is earned, is by definition not grace. But your grace is unearned, unmerited, and yet you lavishly give it. And so we thank you for that, and that grace shows itself in so many ways, including not leaving us to grope in darkness to figure out who we are and what we need to do. We thank you, Lord, for telling us who you are, starting there, and then who we are in relationship to you. And then in turn now, knowing who you are and knowing what our relationship with you was made to be, we can now see what others are to be. We can see them clearly. The world that you have made in which all of that is to happen, all of the categories you tell us about in your word, we thank you for this, Lord. And we look forward over the next few weeks then to exploring them, to seeing them in order, and then to ordering our lives accordingly. I pray for these friends that you will give them the opportunity to be able to be here over these next weeks. I pray that you will go with each of us this coming week now. Help us to serve you in a way that honors you, befitting of who you are. Grant us safety, we ask, and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.